0: Hello and welcome back to Romaniacs, as we celebrate the first step in the Brexiters' crusade to get us back to the good old days before the European Union. Land Rover Jaguar has gone on a three-day week. The NW plan to close their mini-plant in Oxford for a month at the end of March. Can power cuts, fried spam, chopper bikes and white dog poo be far behind? <laughs> My name's Andrew Harrison, I'm your host for today, and it's a special show because we are welcoming a brand new regular to Romaniacs. She's a comedian, an actress, an obsessive Romaniac who premiered her own Brexit-inspired show, Speech! With an exclamation mark at the end, Speech! At last year's Edinburgh Festival, she was born in Germany, so she's very much got Ein Hunt in camp when it comes to freedom of movement for EU citizens. And after her legendary appearances as Osgood in Doctor Who, we are still unsure if she's a Zygon or not, which she refuses to reveal. Hello, Ingrid Oliver, <laughs> yeah. welcome to the show.
2: Hello, it's an absolute pleasure to
0: be here. Plan to, please hand over your dinner money. You're the new girl. Oh,
2: start with bullying. That's kids. Yes. Start with bullying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: we're, we're delighted to so have you joining the show as a full time uh, regular. Are you ready to commit full time to your frontline ramoning?
2: Um, well, to be honest, I di- I've been doing it for last two years in my dressing gown and a sofa at home, so am I might still do company. Well, there
0: you go. Um, we, because we vet our panel very carefully, we've been monitoring your Twitter feed during the run-up to your debut. Uh, Brexit is de- degenerating into a game of Russian dolls. Governments' Brexit plan torpedoed by small factions within party. Those factions' Brexit plans torpedoed by even smaller factions. <laughs> At the end, we'll be left with a very tiny Reese Mog wearing a babushka dress. Yeah, an image quite- to conjure with. I thought that was. A- I was quite pleased with that. Very, very good one. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we spotted one very useful retweet. Any government with the necessary competence to deliver Brexit wouldn't. Which yeah. is true.
2: That's that for me. sums it up. In a, in a nugget.
0: Have, have you been impressed with the government's negotiating prowess since you were a guest on the show in the summer?
2: Um, well, since I was last a guest, I think we've had checkers uh, and and the exodus of half the cabinet and uh, the appointment of Dominic Raab, who... who <laughs> who asked us uh, to excuse his, his lack of uh, laser-like focus on the, on, the, on the detail. So, yeah, really impressed. I've been really impressed And, with and his extreme
0: sweatiness in, in, uh, before the camera. God, sweat don't lie. Absolutely. Yeah. Also with us is Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk, and that man you see on the daily newspaper reviews with his head in his hands. Hello, Ian. How are you doing? <laughs> Hello, very well. Did you enjoy Romaniacs Live last week? You are part of our panel for the, I the live show.
3: I did. I really like it when we have there. I met a guy there who'd come from Sweden for the show. Yeah that was amazing that was remarkable that was, it was so lovely and no, basically that thing was just fantastic
0: and he tacked on a visit to see his family in Birmingham
3: huh, after you said cruelly slack up
0: Birmingham last did I oh right yeah no that, that doesn't sound entirely unrealistic it was though. a very entertaining show it was particularly entertaining making you lot explain how your personal heroes would have dealt with Brexit Alex chose John Luke Picard from Star Trek Naomi went with Charles Kennedy which is very quite moving actually wasn't it it was a, yeah, it it was. Was a touching moments. Dorian chose George Orwell, obviously, and you went for John Stuart Mill. Well, I tried to take Orwell, but Dorian took it.
3: Oh, well. He's got dibs on Orwell since he started writing a book. As if writing a book about something should mean that you should necessarily you know own more. It. Yeah. It's nonsense. Yeah.
0: Terrible. There was partic- some very good audience questions, I thought, as well. as was a particularly heartbreaking one for a woman of German heritage asking Alex, who's Greek, you know, why should people like us stay? And Alex's reply was, well, I'm not going to if this goes through. Why yes. should I? It was really quite gutting.
3: Well, I mean, you're thinking entirely editorially, right? Like, no. How are going to replace? Like, like, no.
0: I just... The idea that, that this whole stupid process is going to result in people actually saying, sod this, I'm off. Yeah is incredibly... I was in the
3: pub with two people talking about Brexit a while back and um, some sort of came over and went, oh, I follow you on Twitter, And me and my wife we both work at the Royal Free Hospital and we're leaving tomorrow back to Germany or whatever. And it was like, it was almost this moment where like, the people in the pub were like, did you pay them to come say this? It was like really? this perfect encapsulation of thing, but it was real, it was wow. legit. And you do see it over and over when you do events like that. People who are from Europe, they're not waiting to find out what the system is. It's more a general sense of, if the country is going to start behaving like I am a problem, why in the name of
0: God would I keep on contributing in the way that I have been doing so far Listeners if you didn't get to the show or if you did and you want to relive the glory uh, our Patreon back has got the audio recording as a special bonus and you can get it too as well as all of our splendid Romaniacs merchandise and every episode of the show a day early on Thursday instead of Friday if you uh, sign up and support us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon just search Patreon Romaniacs find our page and find out more Today's special guest is Alan Smith, who has been an SNP MEP for Scotland, the whole of Scotland, since 2004. He's on the Foreign Affairs Committee and the Delegations for Relations with Iraq and the Arab Peninsula. Alan's well known for an impassioned speech he gave after the referendum result, where he told the European Parliament... Scotland did not let you down. I beg you, do not let Scotland down. Hello, Alan. Welcome to the Hello there. Great to be here. Um, that was a particularly stirring moment. The 25% of my genes that were Scottish became very, very uh, <laughs> electrified at that moment. It was, it was a proper, uh, you know, a, a proper sort of flag in the sand thing. Did you realize that you were going to make such an impression with that?
1: Uh, well, until a couple of minutes before, I didn't realise I was making a speech at all. Oh, right. Uh, it, it had been proposed. Speaking time in the Parliament's very rigorously organised because in a, a group of 751 people with umpteen languages, you've got to be very uh, militant about it. So our group co-president had suggested that one of the Scots should close the debate, but we decided for the moment, ah, let's, let's see how it's going. But when I saw what Nigel Farage was trying to do successfully, he was saying, yeah, I'm the voice of Britain. Hate me, hate me, throw us out. Yeah. Uh, it was, I'm not going to let that bastard speak for my country, <laughs> uh, how, however we define my country. And hence I reached out to the other bits of the UK that voted remain and to the, the, the 52% is not a mandate for Nigel Farage speaking for me. Yeah. And uh, went down to the front of the the, 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 the hall, uh, clapped a hand on his shoulder, and I left bruises apparently. It was like, mate, and want those, those minutes. And he was like, yeah, yeah, do it, do it. So I got hardly any time to prepare, but actually I'd spent the last, eight weeks or so in a miserable European referendum campaign where there was arrogance on all sides, there was complacency, there was ignorance, it was a dreadful debate. I'd, I'd actually been writing that speech in my head without realising. Yeah. Courageous. So so it was from the heart. It was also, I have to say, it was on the verge of tears throughout all of it. It was a, a real emotional moment and it was just the counter, looking back at it, it was the counter that everybody else needed. Yeah. To counter the unrelenting negativity that was coming out of the British Isles at that
0: point. It so, re- it, so, it, so it did rebalance things a bit. Yeah. It's remarkable for such a, a momentous event how little decent rhetoric the whole Brexit process has produced. There are mm. very few memorable lines, and the things that are memorable are memorable for all the wrong reasons. Brexit means Brexit. Such a, a pathetic <laughs> non statement. <laughs> you know, there are very few soaring moments of inspiration to be heard. And uh, I suppose that just. I don't know, maybe that's, the, maybe that's the measure of the moment. Well, in my,
1: in my case, if I keep the Tourette's under control, it's a win. So I, <laughs> I, I, I'd I like to... was particularly happy with that. But yeah, the, the, yeah. the, the whole Brexit debate has been revelling in, in, reveling in ignorance. And actually much of the aim of the debate has not actually been to inform prejudice away by giving people facts and information. It's been to pander to it. Yeah.
2: I was going to say, I I would like to personally thank you because I used your speech in my Edinburgh show last year to cover a costume change. Um, (laughs) There's a a first. No, yeah, I was... um, Because I I did a show that was sort of uh, in reaction to Brexit and I was going through the internet sort of trying to find things that sort of defined for me the argument on both sides. I had Farage... uh, played him into the audience but I was like I'm in Scotland I need I need ideally I'd like someone Scottish and then I found your speech I was like oh my god and it's perfect and it was, it was the only speech of that sort of type uh that for me for the first time I was like oh this is why we, I'd like to stay in the European Union yeah for this reason and it's a Aww. good reason and it's it's emotive and um it, it worked the Scottish would, audience but, members loved it were
0: they out of the seats seat oh, punching the air that kind of thing. they were
2: well, it, there was definitely a moment in the room oh, I, I was literally sort of changing costume I think putting on wigs and, um, <laughs> and yeah but people would go quiet
0: and there was a definitely you could feel it you could feel people sort of quite moved in the room well oh. uh, human fig leaf Alan is going to be with us throughout the show <laughs> 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 <God. laughs> we're going to be talking about Scotland in or out of the EU uh, in or out of the UK plus we're going to be talking about Sadiq Khan coming up for a final say referendum we're not saying people's vote anymore does it matter Will it shift Labour off the fence regarding a vote on whatever deal May comes up with? We're going to be talking about the Migration Advisory Committee recommending more high-skilled immigrants for everywhere, but fewer low-skilled immigrants and no special treatment for EU citizens. Are its recommendations ignorant and elitist, as business leaders have been saying? And we're also going to look at Brexit and history. Why do the Brexiters insist on relating everything from 1066 to Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries to the glorious revolution of 1868 <laughs> to bloody Brexit all the time? <laughs> well, we all know that more appropriate comparisons are the Charge of the Light Brigade, the Tanganyika groundnut scandal, and that time Bake Off <laughs> contestant Ian Waters threw his baked Alaska in the bin <laughs> because it had melted. Right, we're going to need a drink to get through this next lot. Charge your glasses for the Brexit news. First up, momentum for a final say vote on whatever Brexit deal Theresa May comes up with continues to build. Over the weekend, City Khan broke ranks with official Labour policy to call for a vote on the deal with the choice of accepting it or remaining inside the EU. Among the more amusing objections was Michael Gove calling Khan irresponsible and claiming that the London Mayor was saying, stop, let's delay the process, let's throw it into chaos. Because it's been going so well. <laughs> High Sparrow, Jeremy Corbyn, maintained his usual lofty silence on this one, but Emily Thornberry confirmed that Labour would vote against the deal in the Commons, possibly precipitating a general election. And Keir Starmer warned in a letter to Dominic Raab, published in the Sunday Times, that Labour MPs will vote down attempts to force the country into a blind Brexit. Ian. Does Sadiq Khan's intervention on a final save vote matter does it move the needle in any way, do you think?
3: Yeah, I think it has some effect. I mean, we would obviously expect that he would do this as mayor of London, but remember there was quite a lot of calls for him to do for him to do it, what he seemed a little bit hesitant towards for some time. I mean, any time you're going to get the mayor of the major metropolitan centre of the country and also one of the most prominent people in the Labour movement to say this stuff, it helps to build the momentum to where we need to be. I don't quite feel the momentum is possibly at the pace that we need it to be in order to get there in time. But nevertheless, it is important that he comes out and says it. And
0: he was, you know, he showed some, some confidence and bravery in doing so. Was it going to require the non-momentum parliamentary Labour Party to effectively cut itself off from membership to make this happen? Because the membership is so devotedly Corbynid, Corbynist. Corbynist.
3: Yeah, well, also, I mean, really, when we start looking at way the constituency Labour parties are behaving, just an absolute deluge of demands going into conference for them to be talking about this, for them to be passing it. So there is a real push there from the party, and, and it's coming up, I think, to its climax now, which is next week, when the Labour Party conference takes place. Mm. There is a chance there to, to force the issue. But I, I ultimately... Look, I don't see how this – you could have a variety of mechanisms for how you get this thing done. You could, for instance, pass the meaningful vote on the deal and put an amendment on it to have a referendum. But I just don't see that that's a very credible way for it to take place. I think the only way this thing happens is if people vote down the deal. Yeah. Um, And if they vote down the deal, then you can imagine a scenario where, for instance, Theresa May might think, well, fine, I can't get it through the Commons, but I can take it to the people. There's a variety of ways in which you start seeing slices of the Tory party supporting it, which, of course, is a precondition for it taking place, regardless of Labour's position. So even on that, it doesn't seem to me to be the most important part. The most important part really is just get Labour in some sort of place. It doesn't have to be explicit Vote down the deal, and then things become possible.
0: Who was photographed yesterday w- w- with one of those unfortunately exposed notes mm-hmm. with second referendum question yeah. mark next to it? One uh, of the talk- right, and
3: then there was, but part of it was written in Spanish because it was an MEP, and we're not sure from which meeting. And it, it did look for a moment like he'd been for a meeting with Theresa May, in which a, a, a vote was considered one of the variables that she could be facing. Mm. But we're not really sure of which meeting it was when he took those notes down. We're not quite sure. The handwriting is dreadful, and. It's, it's in Spanish and English. <laughs> so we all spent a bunch of time zooming in on this photo being like, is it exigencies? Is it this? Is that like, it was a very hard one this to is read. This Blade Rodder track left. <laughs> Zoom in, <laughs> track left, <laughs> enhance. <laughs> it's it's a yes. well, look, ultimately, there's not enough there to conclude anything strong. It did look like it's possible that Theresa May is considering it as one of the things impacting on her decision making. Yeah. And said it in that meeting.
0: Alan, the SNP have been pretty reticent on a final say referendum. Mm. Uh, Scottish Liberal Democrat leader Willie Rennie said you need to get off the fence on this one. Why is this? Posi- <laughs> you know, why this position? YouGov poll: two thousand Scottish adults. Sixty-six percent of SNP voters want a final say vote. Just over half of Labour voters thought that Scottish Labour should commit to it as well. You're in a safe space, Alan. You're amongst romaniacs. <laughs> Explain the SNP's stance on a final say referendum right now.
1: Well, firstly, I should thank you on Willie Rennie's behalf for exposing him to a far bigger audience than he's used to. <laughs> uh- so, so, so that's nice. It, it, it beggars belief that the Liberal Democrats in Scotland would use their conference plan. Now, I know, know Willie going back a number of years. Yeah. The idea that he'd use that to have a pop at the SNP, which has neither caused Brexit nor nor is nor is working, uh, to, to, to 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 make it happen. Uh, is absurd. Uh, mm. Our attitude to the people's vote, and and right there with the name of it, the people's vote, I and mean, who, lo- who voted in the last one? Badgers. <laughs> we need to be respectful of democracy, mm. or else the electorate will give you a bloody nose. Now, the SNP, we know something about having referendums. Yeah. Referendums are close to our route to independence, because we're utterly democratic. And you can't go back to the people and say, you got it wrong, do it again. So we must be respectful about all of this. So so that's the starting point. Oh. There's also then the practical issues about, well, it's a vote on what? Now, there's been a very useful paper published uh, Wednesday this week uh, by John Kerr and a few others uh, by the People's Vote about a roadmap to how that might happen and the parliamentary mechanisms and that sort of stuff. In order to legislate properly for a referendum on whatever it's going to be, that's going to take a good chunk of parliamentary time, which will necessitate an extension of Article 50. Uh So that needs to be requested by the UK government. And these are serious practicalities that have been just glossed over by a number of folks. And we need to take that seriously. The question itself, is it a question remain within the EU versus the deal? Yeah. In which case, what's the bloody deal? What's going to be in it? The deal is going to be possibly a fudge about three different heads. It's going to be the financial provisions on exit, citizens' rights on exit, some sort of backstop on Northern Ireland. That's it. So we're not actually going to have anything meaningful beyond a political declaration annexed there too, which is meaningless to anybody, and will be all things to all people, for people to actually base their decision upon. So my concern with that would be that the thing will default back to do you want to be in, do you want to be out? And the debate will be every bit as bad as it was first time round. And one of the most toxic things that I think is a a, a massive uh, bit in the armory for the Leave campaign is that the EU hates democracy. The EU told the French to vote again on this treaty, the Irish mm-hmm. to vote again on that treaty, the Danes to vote again on that treaty. I think that's worth a big dunt in the polls for them. Apologies to Ian. A I think, think that's worth a, a big dunt in the a, polls. Big, a big, <laughs> this stunt, is there go, there a big in a good way for it's them. A Scottish they, 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 it's they a Scottish enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> it means <laughs> but, wonderful, right? But right. We've, we've got to we've got to look at the long-term sustainability of will a people's vote actually provide a solution to this, or will it just be fifty-two to forty-eight in the other direction? In which case, you weaponise the right. And UKIP will go full Britain first. We can see that happening before our eyes. Gerard Batten, their leader... Uh this week praising anti uh, Islamophobic uh, uh, groups. It's gruesome stuff that's happening, and we need to be really sensitive that if you go to people and say you got it wrong, there will be a backlash. So is we're it, reticent yeah, to it, this. Is it really
3: this, or is it that you sort of sense you really want another referendum on independence, and you're wary of using up this stock amount of referendum political capital that you have on something which
1: frankly matters to you less than independence? Oh, no. The, the, the first, and, I, and I've written a, a number of times on this, I see no scenario where Brexit makes independent Scotland more likely. I think the economic chaos, the societal chaos that we'll see will make people less amenable to change. So yeah. my job's to stop Brexit for the whole of the UK if that's possible. What I'm really talking about from the bottom of my heart is that, and bear in mind, we've done a lot more referendums than you've done. And if there is a big chunk of the electorate that feels that their Brexit was stolen and their Brexit would have been magic, but a motley coalition of filthy Ramoners, jocks and paddies stole it from us... Mm-hmm. That will go somewhere and it won't go anywhere good. The thing and is, if, we're looking, if, looking for if you want a sustainable to stop, result to this, we need to be much more measured.
3: If you want to stop Brexit, though, and you don't support another referendum on, on the terms, what is the alternate strategy for doing so? Because doing so without another referendum seems like it would be much more poisonous in those regards. Yeah. Oh,
1: sure. I didn't say we're opposing it, I said we're not persuaded and we're reticent. If it becomes a thing in England, and I'd personally be looking for opinion polls above 60% for a consistent period for that to happen, and I'd, I'd very much agree with. Ian's point that the clock is ticking on this but we'd need to see that sort of sustained desire for this to happen in England and bear in mind we voted 62% across every single counting region to remain in Scotland. The idea that we should vote again to save a problem that we didn't create, that's, that, that's already putting our backs up. So if it becomes a thing in England I don't see any scenario whereby we'd stop it because the people of Scotland want to remain. I think you're right only a referendum trumps a referendum and I don't, see much, I don't see much bravery from many of the MPs at Westminster to turn it around themselves. But it needs to be done in a sustainable way that's actually a long-term strategy about the UK getting rid of the chip on its shoulder to the EU engagement. The UK has always for decades had a sniffy arms-length transactional approach to the EU. Oh. And if we just flip this vote back by a narrow majority, and the poll suggests that it would be a narrow majority at the moment then we'll be back here in five years' time and it'll be even worse.
3: I mean, all of that makes sense. And I I don't disagree with any specific point that you've raised. But nevertheless, if only a referendum can trump a referendum and we are opposed to Brexit, that sort of suggests that the only possible policy that one could support is another referendum. Without that, you sort of find yourself in the position, I think, you know, validly, because all of the points you raised were fair, you sort of find yourself in a position where you're tacitly supporting the Brexit that is being pursued by the government because you're not
1: offering any alternatives to it. Well, we have committed ourselves in Scotland to an independence referendum once we see what the details of Brexit are. Now, we can't, within Scotland, stop Brexit happening for the whole of the UK. We respect England's democracy. England voted to leave, and we can't stop that happening. But in terms of what we've committed to, we've committed to an independence referendum in Scotland against independence or remaining within the EU. But what I've said, if it becomes a thing in England, I think it's obvious to the ducks in the street that our guys at Westminster are not going to stop it happening. Hmm. And you know where we're going to be, but there is also the, the idea that the people who are into Brexit aren't great fans of the jocks either. Hmm. So, would a Scottish voice in that debate be counterproductive or not? I think that's an open question. Mm-hmm.
2: I think, I think for me, this is another, another, just another sort of head in hands moment because I am worried about the dissolution of the UK
1: hmm.
2: at, completely after Brexit. We is all the focus has been on Northern Ireland, but I mean, Scotland. In all honesty, if we do leave the European Union. I I can't see a situation where there wouldn't be another indie ref, and and that that might go to. to I mean, you, you're in the European Parliament every week. Yeah. Have you had you, have you had chats with guys in corridors saying, <laughs> you know, if they go, we want to stay. Uh, so how would that look? There must have been those conversations had.
1: Well, of course. Yeah. Uh, our, our our party's proposition remains independence within the European Union. Yeah. But we also and you know, take us, take us at face value. 2014 referendum all of us put our heart and soul into it and 45% mm. pro independence 55% to remain yeah that's a so, that's a solid result and we accepted that result and we were told that we're a family of nations mutual respect and, and, and all Scots know their history we voluntarily merged by the democratic standards of the time which were pretty shonky but we by the standards <laughs> of the time we voluntarily merged to form great britain it was an international treaty we're a partnership of equals if you want to Remain within the EU, you need to back the UK. If you want a stable economy, you need to back the UK. All of these promises have not been fulfilled.
2: Yeah. I don't blame and you. That's the thing. But, but I don't blame th- th-
1: this you is, at all. This, 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 and, and I'll say from the bottom of my heart as well, I, I was at Leeds Uni, Nottingham Law School. I was a city lawyer up the road here in London. No, no stranger to Soho, though the less we say about that, the better. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot of affection for for England, and I fear for where England's going with this, and I think Brexit, the Brexit vote, and this is where I hope David Cameron doesn't sleep at night, to have any vote about anything at this point in the UK's history, when there's so much discontent about where people are in their lives... So much discontent with where England's democracy is, because if you're in a safe seat, be it Labour, Tory, whatever else, your vote hasn't mattered for decades. Yeah. Now, we in, the, in the independence referendum in Scotland, we saw a lot of people who checked out of the democratic process 20, 30 years ago, often going right back to the poll tax days, re-registering on the electoral roll to take part in the referendum. Mm-hmm. You don't do that to endorse the status quo. And we saw exactly that in the run up. Remember, in the run up to the yeah. EU referendum. This was where a lot of people who feel ignored and shut out of politics suddenly felt their vote mattered, and it was a vote for change. I don't think the EU was actually uppermost in their minds. It was a vote for change. Let's give the establishment a slap. Much more visceral than that. And these are the people who I think are movable, but I think we need to do that in a much more graduated way than we're seeing today. And too much of what I'm hearing from... A number of the campaigns who I, I think are all well intentioned. I'm working with all of them across across the parties, but if the mood music that comes across to Joe Public is "you got it wrong, do it
0: do it again," that will not yeah. give the right result. I think I think it's very rare that, that anybody on the People's Vote side articulates it in that way. They they mm. they talk about you need to look at the deal properly. You need to have True. a say on True. the deal rather than you got it wrong, do it again. And and, and I think. It will be a stretch to imagine that uh, anybody could argue that Europe made us vote again. The Europe, you're there the whole time. They seem serenely uninterested in uh, in in bringing another vote to bear. I don't know. We're clearly going to refer, return to this over mm. and over and over on this show. But let's move on to another item that um, uh, occurred this week, that Migration Advisory Committee report on immigration. Um Hence the name. Uh, Its report said that the cap on high-skilled migrants coming to the UK should be lifted, but it is not convinced there needs to be a work route for low-skilled workers from the the EU to fill jobs in industries such as catering or hospitality, and it saw no reason to offer special treatment to EEA citizens unless Britain decides to make an offer as part of a Brexit deal. Business leaders queued up to bash the report, with the Road Haulage Association's chief exec saying, the idea that only high-skilled immigration should be allowed is both ignorant and elitist. Ian, is the Migration Advisory Committee essentially saying that work visas and migrants ought to mean negotiating ships for a Brexit deal?
3: No, they sort of, they were quite specific about saying, well, look, we're not going to get into what you might need to do as part of your negotiating strategy. We're just going to tell you, you know, how we think the immigration system should work after Brexit, irrespective of the sort of stuff you might need to do in negotiations. I found this an, an extremely troubling report, actually, from a body which I used mm-hmm. to, to quite like. it. Start. I mean, it has about 70 pages of evidence that it has taken about the fact that immigration certainly does nothing to hurt this country and in many cases improves it. It's still one of the most critical assessments of immigration that I've seen. And by that, it basically sees that it's sort of net neutral is really how it oh. comes down. And then it ends... By going, oh, by the way, you're really going to have to get rid of Freedom Movement. You're going to have to get rid of anyone that's coming here that's earning under 30 grand. It's really actually quite a draconian policy suggestion yeah. that it comes up with. And one that businesses themselves, who are not just delving into politics for the fucking fun of it. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, these are guys who are like, no, no, this is what we need. And so don't, don't tell us that we don't need it. I mean, to go through very briefly what their evidence was, they are showing that employment, and again, this is... This is actually some of the most negative evidence I've seen on immigration. Nevertheless, it finds employment outcomes for the UK workforce have suffered no difference from the fact that it is EU immigration that it is not a major determinant of wages, and insofar as there is any effect on wages, that, has been un- that would have been completely overshadowed by the 1.7% rise in prices as a result of the fall of sterling that followed after Brexit. It found that productivity went up because of immigration. It mm-hmm. found specifically that innovation went up. These, of course, are the areas where the British economy struggles the most. It found no negative impact on UK training. That part's especially important, by the way. What you'll hear a lot from sort of lexitors is that we'll find they can... we just. Employers use immigration, shunk them into these jobs. There's no point training up your own workforce because you can get someone from Europe. This report, critical report, found actually there's no change on, on UK training whatsoever, that there is reduced service prices, that where there are increases in house prices, it's because the stock is not being increased, that immigrants from the EU pay more in tax than they take in benefits, that they contribute more to health care in the form of money and in terms of working in it than they take out, and that there is no increase in crime on the basis of it. So you've got all of that evidence, and then yeah. you turn the page, and they're like, oh, and by the way, we need to get rid of free movement and reduce yeah. everyone who's earning under it 30 grand from coming a- here. And you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? And yeah. that's because this is the point where the economists have basically noticed the political winds and gone, shit, better respond to that. Yeah. And it has no connection whatsoever to the actual research that they have done. Yeah.
0: Ingrid, I mean, we, this has popped up on the podcast, podcast once or twice before, this unquestioning... Uh, You know, we unquestionably swallow this idea that we want the best and the brightest Mm -hmm. without ever stopping to consider that the best might not necessarily be the brightest. You need people to do those jobs that are not highly technical. You need, you know, uh, you know, you need people to pick your fruit on your fruit farm. And the brightest might not necessarily be the best, as we're possibly thinking about on the 10th anniversary of the financial crash. You know, this idea that we only want high, you know, highly paid, high earner, high skilled individuals. And we don't want the people who kind of make the wheels of the country run.
2: Well, it's that slightly colonial sort of attitude of like we like people from Australia and America? Is that thing that, that like yeah. Trump said about why don't we get Norwegian immigrants? They're great instead <laughs> of Mexicans. And there is a sort of weird imperialist attitude. It to gives them. us that idea
0: of a counterfactual idea of where America that's full of Norwegians, and Donald Trump is going, get rid of the Norwegians. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: um, but they, are, but it's interesting. I think I think that report. I think what it does do is, is address sort of weirdly to years after the fact the immigration issue, which was. I still believe the the, mo- the most important issue surrounding Brexit and the reason that people voted the way they did, in like you, know, you know, like in places like Wales where where it's been established that they they got possibly the most help from the EU and mm-hmm. voted to leave. Um, it, there was a genuine concern that that people in low-paid jobs were being were being um, sort of pushed out of those jobs by people coming from from over from Eastern Europe and and people paying them less. Uh, and so that is a genuine concern that people have, and had, and I think that report mm. sort of addresses that. But it does; it's not helpful because it's not. If we if we get rid of all those workers, small businesses are going to collapse, are going yeah. to be in trouble, and then there'll be no jobs for anyone. So that that's not the way forward. That is not the leaving the EU was never the way to address that. And like my, my brother, who is it's sort of, I mean, my brother worked in a in a factory up in Newcastle. Uh, he's an engineer. It's a French American company. And they've had they closed their plants yeah. uh, last year. Last year they did, and they never sort of said specifically it was, it was Brexit related. But there, uh, sort of there was a leak uh, in the press, and it said that it, well Brexit was of course a factor. As 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 with all these things, you don't you can't specifically say Brexit has cost us this million x amount of pounds because it's all a creeping. Gray area. Yeah. So, so my brother's company was moved uh, to to Spain. So he's he now lives in, in, in Spain because he has a German passport, so he can do that. So he's not a risk. So after Brexit, so they they know yeah. that he can stay post Brexit. Yeah. But for the four hundred people that work in the factory with him, they have not been able to do that. So it's we're, the jobs are being lost. And so this idea that if you control immigration at that level, the the basic level that factories and small businesses need to run, which is the lower-skilled end we're just going to see I just don't know how, how it's going There's to also end this,
3: it's, a, it's a real error to just see workers in terms of they are a low paid worker he is a bright and best you I know got, worker. Yeah, not him yeah, right? yeah. he's a low paid worker of people like, especially, especially in the creative industries will go around on very low salaries for a long time until they start doing well and then start succeeding and suddenly they become one of your breast and biters but before that <laughs> there were low skilled biters. breast yes. and <laughs> biters <laughs> <Yeah>, absolutely no <laughs> reflection <laughs> on my internal monologue so, <laughs> <laughs> um, but before that they're a low-skilled worker. And um, you, you see the same thing with, let's say that we used to have rules that said master's students could take two years to work in the oh, UK yeah. after their masters was everything. So get rid of that. This is That's a great... I mean, master students, typically international students, they've got quite a lot of money behind them. They're the kind of people who are disproportionately likely to set up businesses if they have warm thoughts about the country that has given them the masters, where that was part of their young, mm. formative development, where they got to stay for two years and were given a shot. They are likely to set them up with you. But if you just say, we only take you once you've made it, you cut yourself off from getting the people who are going to make it in the future.
0: Yeah. Mm. Alan, um, Scotland needs immigrants. Scotland really needs immigrants. What's your response to this? It's going to Cut off the supply of valuable people to Scotland.
1: Yeah, exactly, I, I, I'm really glad of the fact that there is a cross-party consensus across all the parties in Scotland that we need fewer, uh, we need more people, not fewer. Mm. Uh, wherever they're coming from, freedom of movement has been great for Scotland as a society, as an economy, and, and, and I mean this really personally. I grew up in Saudi Arabia as an immigrant myself. My folks are still in the Middle East. You know, having, having to deal with immigration stuff is something I remember personally. And, and my, folk, my my sister's lives living in California, having to do green card stuff. Yeah, you know, the idea that the UK has not done that, and I will praise Tony Blair for it. Uh, it, it was the, the Blair government that opened the doors. As widely as possible to freedom of movement on accession of uh, the Central Eastern European states, that was great for the yeah. UK. And and what I like about this report, and I don't think this report is going to live in anybody's memory for very long. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's one for the ages. But what it has proven is that immigration has been financially fantastic for uh-huh. the UK. And and I think we need to ram that home to everybody. And. We cannot pander to people's basest in, in instincts. I and mean, we've seen this with the Jews in the 1300s, with the Irish and various other points. It, it, the, the worst mark of a scoundrel is blame the foreigners, you know, blame somebody else, blame somebody who's not like you, blame somebody who's not from around here. Mm. That's poison. That oh. goes to a really bad place really fast. And in the Internet age where we can all tweet, tweet hate speech at each other even faster. So it's really important that the words we use are Scotland is welcoming. If you're here, you're one of us. Uh, one of the things that I'm most proud of in the Scottish Government's programme for government, uh, we are going to legislate to make sure that EU nationals and nationals from elsewhere will have voting rights in Scotland mm. post-Brexit. Because we've got voting rights now, we will make sure that your right to vote in Scotland is not going to be about your nationality, it's about living here. So if you live here, you're one of us, you're part of our community, you have a right to vote because you're part of our common will. That's not where the UK is going. And, and what, what, what worries me about this report, exactly as Ian says, it's a group of people who've made the facts fit the, the narrative rather than the other way around. And Miss, Mrs May has said, and I think it's one of the few things she actually does believe she thinks that immigration should be in the tens of thousands. Now, that, that's a fast track back to the 1950s. Oh. That's, that's bloody dreadful stuff. And it offends me on, on every possible level. And I think we need to face that down for what it is because if we pander to that, and there's enough people like Nigel Farage and the rest of them that will seek to inflame that, you know, fear of the other, fear of the... You know, there's a continuum to this stuff. And I think this report is really unhelpful in that it actually ignored the facts and then sang along with the narrative. You know, the, the idea that there's good immigrants and bad immigrants, you know, it's the same as the, deser- the deserving poor yeah. versus work-shy scoundrels. I find weird, Because
3: I, I actually think that the facts don't support the narrative. So it's almost, hmm. it, it feels like it's, it's almost just like there's, there's this sort of white half and then it just, there's a completely opposite second half where you just think, like well, nothing that you have just said supports the conclusions that you have come yeah, to. They seem yeah, like they're completely bonkers.
0: Looking further into the future... As part of the kind of the vision for an independent Scotland, what is the, what's the immigration component for an independent Scotland and does it apply to valuable English people like podcast producers? <laughs> <laughs> we, we will have an
1: expansionist approach as matters. Okay, <laughs> it right. matters. Okay. We're a welcoming country. We're a third of the UK landmass. We've got the vast majority of the marine territory that the UK presently enjoys. We've got oil, we've got gas, we've got wind, we've got biomass, we've got, we've got everything in spades. And we're not full up. We're a very, very big country that needs more people and wants more people. And I am really, as I say, really pleased that there is a cross-party consensus in Scotland that if you're here, you're one of us. Where you're from, of course, most of our immigrants come from England. Mm. But they're not immigrants. They're new Scots. And I, as a politician, if I get into you're more Scottish than you are... That, that's that's a dangerous cul-de-sac. So my attitude and the attitude of the Scottish Government is if you're here, you're one of us. How Scottish you feel, well, that's your business, that's personal. But we will always be welcoming and open to more people coming in. And that's where freedom of movement has been great for us. And that's why we want to keep it. And that's why if the UK is minded to carry down Mrs May's disastrous fewer than tens of thousands road, then it's possible, and there's there's things to work out, but it's possible that we could see a different immigration policy for Scotland. We had that before with post-study work, post work visas, mm. so there is precedent. The Canadian provinces administer immigration differently. We need to look at all the options, because if we see ourselves locked into this fast track to the 1950s, it'll hit us worse than it'll
0: hit most places. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to something that isn't exactly news, but is Interesting. There was a great piece in the Irish Times this week by the historian Christopher Kissane, headlined, Historical nonsense underpins UK's Brexit floundering... From Hastings to Dunkirk, a past that blinds Britain to reality has been peddled. Dr Kassane is a historian with the Royal Historical Society in London, and he enumerates pretty much every moment in British history being mobilised as the first Brexit. It starts with the words, In June, David Davis said, Anyone who suggests that the United Kingdom cannot be trusted and isn't the proven friend of every single country in Europe needs to brush up on their history. I bet that went down really well with an Irish readership. <laughs> uh, and it all goes downhill from there. <laughs> Alfred the Great was the first Eurosceptic who went to rhys morgue. Uh, oh, Britain, yeah. yeah. Britain's stupidest vicar, the Reverend Giles uh, Fraser, <laughs> likens the Brexit, <laughs> likens Brexit to the Reformation, and says we survived our break from Europe then, and we'll do it, we'll do so again because except uh, for all the execution, exactly. Really. And you know, just come on, man. Aircraft technology, agrarian subsistence, it's all the same thing. <laughs> yeah, but the most objectionable of, of all, <laughs> this really did stink. Daniel Hanan calling the Battle of Hastings England's England's, England's Nakba. The term for the Palestinian Exodus of nineteen forty eight and the beginning therefore the beginning of centuries oppression of England, which manages to be to me that's offensive to British people, Europeans, Palestinians, Israelis, historians and sub editors all at the same time. Ingrid, <laughs> you're British German. Yes. We are infamously obsessed with our imagined past in this country. Is anything ever gonna snap us out of it? Or is this what's going to snap us out of it? Do you
2: know what's really weird? I because I've sort of grown up in two different countries, and I also grew up in the in, in the Middle East, Kuwait uh, for a bit, and Birmingham, and all sorts of places. So I, I don't know. I sort of feel like an outsider looking in 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 most places. And Germany is one of those places that I, obviously after the war, it's not a country after the two wars. It's not a country that can go around going, "We were great. We yeah. were so great." Um, you just have to get on with it, and and uh, you know, and, and own up to own up to what you've done you know, to a greater or lesser degree, and, and, um, and just get on with it, the future and the present and the here and now. And, and England has this weird, it's very odd. I, I, I had the good fortune of, of going to Oxford University, and I studied German and Italian Euro- languages, go Europe. Um, and, um, I, I was, and I came from, a, I, I went to a state school, but I, I, there I met people, that I, I recognise in our parliament now. And it was people who, from the age from a very young age, went to these rarefied schools, uh, Westminster often, or Eton, or whatever, and then they went to an Oxford college, which looks also like a castle, and then they go straight <laughs> into parliament, which also looks like, <laughs> like a, castle. a castle. So yeah. all yeah. they know, like someone like David Cameron, for example, or, or he literally went to Westminster, Oxford, and then put, with a bit of a break in between for some There's PR-ing. a lot of college out there? And there? then, no. well, and, you know, so, so that is what their England looks like. It looks like this rarefied sort of a fairy tale image of of days gone by that is just not relevant to the majority of the people who live in this country, and so the people at the vanguard of this Brexit movement, it is it is this it is this very odd. They ha- and again in the quoting of classics and ancient history and sort of it's like well no one. Nobody, well, that belter from Reese Mogg
0: describing Chequers as the greatest vassalage since King John paid homage to Philip II at Legulee took nobody, the words out of mouth. Nobody has <laughs> heard of it, mate. Yeah. Nobody has but, heard but, of it. But
2: what's more ridiculous is that there are people who still think these are you know, like this ragtag bunch of just unplucky underdogs who were just who were looking out for the little guy, which they are so uh, they are so rarefied. These these especially Jacob Rees Mogg. Wow.
0: That was the voice. That of was Ricky. your phone. That was my phone. He
2: tells he tells us to put our phones up. <laughs> That's <it>? bullshit. <laughs>
0: that <laughs> is straight <laughs> up bullshit. Yeah, it is. Straight wow.
2: up bullshit.
3: <laughs> actually, I have to say, I'm a little bit sympathetic towards the Hanan example. Um, I don't. He didn't express it in a very good way. But I think there's a pretty good case. There's a there's a very good case actually to say that the kings of England before the Norman invasion were sort of bastards all, but not one of them a tyrant, and that actually the Norman yoke is the start of state tyranny that goes on for a long time in British history and doesn't really sort of change until the English Civil War really so to be honest as a historical example it's got fuck all to do with Brexit but it's still nevertheless that pointing at 1066 as a moment where something fundamentally changed in the way that this country operates I think remains a, a pretty sound way of looking at our yeah, history
0: yeah but you know like can it get to Palestine and the Nakba Yeah, yeah no, that's grossly, cool, yeah that's not cool I yeah mean, that's not cool and
3: comparing it to Brexit is not cool either I mean none of that makes sense but as, as a point of narrative I think that part seems seems fair enough I'm quite susceptible to the historical example stuff to be honest and I quite, I quite like the, the, the sort of especially the sort of English sensibility of just like we will reach back into the and no matter how far you go back in English history they keep on doing Doing it. You know, when you read about the 1600s, they're all at that point. On about, like, well, well, let's talk about the, yeah. the 1300s or whatever. Yeah. And actually, I think that there is a sense of consistency that comes to a country and stability by virtue of worshipping your past. You've just got to be sensible about the examples that you look at and not get all hysterical about it.
2: But when, yes. But when that past involves an imperialist past, we were, you know, it's, it's, it's that thing of, oh, we were great because we raped and pillaged and we had loads of stuff. And, and I know that's not the 1066 example, but... The obsession with sort of history and war and kings, it's always, it's always, it's never like the little guy. It's always the kings at the top. Mm. And I do find, it's what I said, I think, last time I was on, the obsession, and and again, with a certain type of Brexiter, this obsession with sort of Churchill and and generals and and that kind of war language, it strikes me as a very male. Way of looking Mm, at things, but you can
3: also find a more radical history. I think if if you go the the thing is you're you're spot on, but it's that the people that seem to talk about this stuff only look at it yes from the generals and the you know the Armada and Waterloo and um, Mm. but there is of course a radical history there whether it's the peasants' revolt or whether it's the English Civil War or whether it's the struggles that were taking place in the 1800s that is there to be found and it's just about adopting a more complex view of what took place rather
0: than ignoring it altogether. Alan, I mean this is we're talking about English history here, but. You know, the SNP is a nationalist party, and there's a, there's a fair bit of William wallace to be found in Scottish nationalism. <laughs> You're not averse to it yourselves. Uh, a fair bit of, like, harking back to the great history. How do we kind of wean people off this idea of seeing everything through a prism of great deeds done in the past according to possibly not very reliable accounts? Mm. Is it possible? Well,
1: Well, I have to say, i take issue with the the characterisation of where 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 nationalism is. I mean, our proposition for Scotland was all about the future. Mm -hmm. And what makes a nation a nation is, well, that's history and that's all interesting. And every nation's unique and every nation's got its good points and its bad points. I, I, I have no doubt, as a Scot that my ancestors were slavers and opium smugglers and tobacco smugglers, mainly on my mother's side, I'd imagine. <laughs> but you, you can't look at that. You, you can't my pretend personality it was... not Oh, oh <laughs> seriously. Honestly, she was going to tell me off for that. But, but we're having a debate in Edinburgh right now about uh, putting a plaque beneath uh, Lord Dundas, who's one of the biggest statues within Edinburgh, mm-hmm. who was, was single-handedly responsible for the, delaying the abolition of the slave trade. Mm. So you can't look at a country's history and say we were the goodies. And, yeah. and mm-hmm. like like Ingrid, having grown up abroad, the idea that the Brits were the good guys it, it, it is it's something of a, a loaded question in big chunks of the world. Yeah. <laughs> so, so so you can't play the historical stuff. And A nation either is or is not, exists or does not. And sitting over in Brussels, what makes up different places is very different. I mean, within the UK, we're unusual in that our borders haven't changed that much in a long time. Oh. Where look at the Czech and Slovak republics, look at Flanders, look at Belgium, look at the Netherlands. Borders move. Or look at Strasbourg where we go on a regular basis. They don't actually change the signs. They just wait for them to fall down and <laughs> replace it with a new language, whichever, whichever it is these days. That, that's something that people can get used to. But, but it really strikes me that the Brexiters, they only use the past to justify what they're trying to do. Very few of them are talking about the future in any meaningful sense mm. at all. And they're using this delusion of bygone glory... And we were the good guys. We'll muddle through. We stood alone before, you know. But there was one of the UKIP MEPs said, we we, we made it through the Second World War. Said, you were born in 1958. Well, you, you couldn't make it through a fast jog, you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you, more you ludicrous individual. <laughs> we
0: didn't stand up and vote to have the Second World War visited upon us, did we? We didn't stand up and say, I've got a great idea. Let's get all our cities bombed to rubble. Indeed. And then it's we'll it's see if we can get through and,
1: it. And, and I think it, it, it shows the paucity of their ambition and the paucity of their intellectual case as well. When we had, Forgive me harking back to, to Scotland, but that, that is what I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, when we had our independence referendum, there was a 650-page prospectus and lots of other documents for the individual bits as well that people could kick the tires of and test. And some people were persuaded, some people weren't, and that's democracy. I took one of the UKIP MEPs to task over a pint. Uh, I'm, I'm a sociable wee soul. I'll, I'll, I'll go and speak to as many folk as I can to keep channels open. And I, I was, was lambasting about it. Well, why, where's your prospectus? You know, it's perfectly legitimate to say I want to leave the EU, but you've got to say what you'd replace it with or else it's a false argument. Mm. And in Scotland, we've got Norway just over there. We've got Iceland just over there. We know that there's other ways of doing this. There, there was historically an element within my party that didn't want to be part of the EU either because we want democracy to be as close to us as possible. And mm. the EU is a supranational, yada, yada, yada. That's now not the case. But it's a legitimate argument. But my, my objection to the Leave campaign is they took a conscious decision, and he confirmed to me that they did. We learned from your experience, the more you told people, the more you were held to account. So yeah, right. because people were left with a fantasy option of there'll be Brexit unicorns on every mountain, there'll be a windmill for every voter, £350 million for the NHS, who wouldn't vote for that? Because it was everything you like, you'll keep. Everything you don't like, you'll get rid of. And it grieves me even more that that's where we still are within the UK's debate on this. There are still people who are saying, I will keep that. I will definitely keep the Erasmus programme. I will definitely keep pet passports. we will definitely keep that. All of these things are possible, but there's going to be a massive price tag attached that isn't attached presently. And it grieves me that there's a likelihood that people will only realise what they're losing once it's too late.
0: Alan Smith, thanks for being with us on, on the show. We, we had um, Seb Dance MEP on Remain Next a few weeks ago talking. God about, love him, he's great. God love him. He talked about what it's like, what it's actually like to be an MEP, and it's, it's like it feels kind of sad now. Like you're <laughs> you're still at the party, kind of apologising for the relative who punched everybody and went home, but you're still there trying to kind of make nice with people you really like. Does that resonate at all?
1: Well, sadly, the relative who punched everybody is now rolling about naked over the buffet table. The, 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 <laughs> the, the problem is they're not gone at all. Uh, it's, it's strange days. I mean, I've been an MEP since 2004. So I'm in my third term now. You know, grand old man that I am, I was elected just after my 12th birthday. It was it was great. <laughs> so, so, so I've got yeah. a number of pals within the house. I've got people who I have long-standing relationships with. So there's a lot of goodwill in the bank, and and that, that that's really important. Uh, likewise, Seb, who who who, who I, 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 I love to bits. There's a lot of us are working cross-party. To, to help debates within each other's party to help debates within each other's constituency there there, there is a a good cross party cooperation going on which has kept a, a, certainly me going I, I suspect it's kept a lot of others going as well I mean, the, the the feeling of powerlessness of mm. this and and this is where back to my point earlier about the UK's sniffy arm's length attitude. To, to, to the EU's democracy. I, I have said for 15 years, I, I'm not some sort of diplomat. I'm, I'm, I'm not lolling about in silk cushions. Here. Not most of the time anyway. <laughs> I, I, I am passing domestic law in a different place. And we're doing that in conjunction with umpteen other countries as a, as a block of 500 million people. Now, if you're talking about organized crime, climate change, which remains the biggest thing that's actually facing us yeah. right now, uh, how to deal with the Internet, how to, how to deal with a globalizing information economy, you're going to get a better result as a block of 500 million people, because otherwise China will set the standards or the Americans will set the standards. Right. That, that, that's the global reality we're living with. So we are dealing with big stuff, big issues, and all of that's still going on. But so much of the UK's debate about Brexit has been by posh boy know-nothings who are quoting Pliny and whoever else and pretending with with their generations of public schoolboy confidence, but actually talking complete mince about how the EU actually works. I mean, even look at the Chequers deal. Politicians who said, "Well, we've agreed at checkers," and it's like, oh, good, for, "Good for you, sweetheart. Yeah, that, that's great, doll." But twenty-seven is actually a bigger number than one, and everybody in Brussels for months has said, "This isn't. Our, this isn't at the races, guys." and yet it's still being put forward by people with a straight face in the public se- public schoolboy confidence I'm talking about, as if it was actually something real. And the MEPs within each party, and I will say the SNP is different in this. I, I'm a member of our national executive. My, my, my colleague is our party president. Right the way back to Winnie Ewing and the, uh, the, the times gone by. We've always had the European question at the heart of what we're doing. I don't think that's the same for a lot of the other parties, and the MEPs have not been part of their party's discussion about this. And Seb being an an honourable example, Richard Corbett being another, there's a a number of the Labour folks, a few of the Tories as well, are working hard to make these points. But there's been that disconnect between political UK and how Brussels actually works, where the MEPs were an afterthought for year after year, sent over to, you know, the the amount of times even even I've been asked, how are things over in Europe? it's like, well, you're in Europe now, Bohid, you you actually, this is part of what we're doing. So... So it's it, it's sad, and I think there's a, there's there's a lot of people who are going to realise what's what's actually in danger of being lost, and I don't think it's lost yet. But uh, yes, yeah, certainly as a, as an MEP, there's a it,
0: it's a it, it's a sad time. It's it's been it's been tough. Yeah. Just returning to that we talked about it earlier, the question of what Brexit means for another independence referendum. It's the hot issue. Like a lot of English people, including David Bowie, I really didn't want Scotland to leave, and I was I was very glad that the mm. independence result went in favour of staying in the UK. Circumstances have changed enormously. What is your argument and the SNP's argument to an Englishman like me that I should support your stance on Scotland leaving the union? Oh. Not that I have a vote. It doesn't make, really matter in some you respects. Sure. But what, what, no, don't, we, we,
1: we want to maintain really close relations. We're not going to change geography. We're not going to change the social union. We're not going to fit, change the fact I'm an English qualified lawyer from Leeds University. All of that stays. Uh, we want to maintain as close a relationship with the UK as we can. Now, Bear in mind in 2014, our proposition was that we'll all remain within the single market, we'll all remain within the customs union. So much of the nuts and bolts stuff that people might notice of, of a change actually wouldn't exist because it would be a matter of shifting status within the EU for Scotland to accede to the, the, the top, top division. But the rest would stay the same because the single market legislation, that, that, that wasn't part of the picture. So the proposition is going to change next time round. And there's practical issues for us to get round, and that's why we've reset the timetable to an independence referendum, because we need to see what the reality of Brexit Britain is in order to formulate the proposition about what we're going to become independent from. Mm. Because we are not going to have the sort of debate that we saw from the Leave campaign, but we'll just ask people to vote for an abstract. Scots are canny. We, we want to kick the tyres of what it is. We want to see how, We want to test it. We want to, to have a, a good idea of what we're actually voting for. And my sense of where people are in Scotland now is that there's a big chunk of the population who were not persuaded last time round? Not hostile. Most people weren't hostile. But there was a number of people who weren't persuaded. And they're now looking at the UK saying, well, hang on, I I, I didn't vote for this. I didn't sign up to this. We were told we'll have the most powerful parliament short of federalism. That was not delivered. We were told we'll remain within the European Union. That's in the process of not being delivered. We didn't vote for people like Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg to have a serious part in our government. And the more that we're hearing of where, where the UK might be going, the more we're thinking well hang on, we've got another choice here. And because the European question was absolutely fundamental to the independence referendum, and not least a number of EU nationals who of course had the vote within Scotland to vote because they're part of our community a lot of EU nationals voted no hmm. on the basis that they didn't want to threaten their EU status, and and that's democracy and that's quite right. But we're now seeing that a lot of the promises that were made have not been lived up to. Now, We must make sure that this is a utterly democratic process we're going to make sure that there's an intellectual proposition to test but I have to and I I say this with some sadness I I think we need to look at well what's going to serve the people I serve which Uh is the people of Scotland best and it's not our responsibility to make sure England elect sensible people and I see a number of people in the Commons who are just flatly not sensible people. It's funny though you know for a lot of us
3: because we do see ourselves as part of the same country as Scotland and we feel a sense of solidarity Mm. So when you say things like, it is not our job to think about, you know, how this is operating, it's sort of, there's a further step there, which is also like, and also, we kind of want to get out. So we don't want to really concern ourselves
1: too much about what the consequences are for you either. Mm. Well, that's, that's the difference of perception. And I've got a lot of English pals who have said, well, we're, we're one country. I said, well, no, we're not. We're four countries and one state. And... We have got a lot of differences within Scotland that we can, we can dress it up as it, it's we things like when, when English people talk about the northeast, they're talking about Newcastle. When we're talking about the northeast, we're talking about Aberdeenshire. Mm. You're a difference of perception about where we fit in the world and where we sit. There is a big chunk of the people of Scotland who are very nervous about where Westminster rule might be taking us. Now, there's a big chunk of people in England nervous about Indeed. where Westminster rule might be taking yeah. you. But forgive me, we've got a different constitutional history and we've got a different option and a different choice. I we do understand a... this this thing of, of course, legally
3: it's a different country. Of course it is. But that's not, you know, how it felt when, when we were growing up, especially when you come to an immigrant family like mine. You almost never really associate that strongly with England. What you associate with is Britain. And I think mm. the reason for that is because it has multiculturalism baked into the bones of how it operates, that its starting assumption is that different tribes can live together in a way where they ha- they share a sense of solidarity, so it's very strange yeah. for us when we see sort of when we see Scottish nationalists, who, obviously, most of the time are talking, you know, left-wing, social democratic stuff that we we agree with that, we, mm. the, that we're obviously sympathetic to. Suddenly, start talking about the end of that solidarity in that way. It's very very hard for us to sign up to the idea that that's in any way progressive. And also,
0: you know, like I was born in Liverpool, and you know, where I grew up, everybody was Irish, Welsh, Scottish, and. English was an odd, you know, kind of nobody ever talked about an English heritage. Mm. England seemed to be a place that happened in the mm. southeast, south of Birmingham. <laughs> so we sort of feel like—that's actually where I live, by the way. Yeah, yeah. It was and shit. It, so you misunderstand. And it's
2: interesting to hear you talk because you, you, uh, Alan was talking about uh, you grew up in a in different countries. Mm. So actually, for you to, to, you know, to belong to the SNP, which is is obviously Scottish Nationalist Nus- Party, that's quite interesting. As, in, as, in you decided that. Rather than that, you were you were you'd seen lots of different parts of the world, and you didn't feel like a citizen of a particular place. You, you very strongly identified with Scotland, mm-hmm. so that's yeah, what just yeah, it's, a, it's a conscious choice. Yeah. And and
1: I, cards on table. I was always small P political, wasn't party political. I would volunteered for the Labour Party a day a week when I was at law school. I worked for briefly for the Lib Dems at Westminster. I as a volunteer volunteer only ever joined one party. That was the SNP after an internship in Brussels where it became clear to me that Scotland is already viewed, and this was, Jesus, was 20-odd years ago, that Scotland is already viewed as a distinct thing. So, and this is, this is the point where, where Ian's talking about solidarity. Well, there's a lot of people in Scotland who are doing great. There's a big chunk of the Scottish population that has grinding poverty that we need to fix. And we're not fixing it. And as part of the UK, we're not fixing it. We don't have the tools to do that. And we need to have those tools at home in Scotland. We need to have full control of our resources. And then it's up to us to make those decisions. At the moment, UK rule means that we remain a small minority within the UK and our interests will not be at the forefront of what the UK does business for because we're a minority. Exhibit A being the Brexit vote. We voted 62% to remain across every counting region, the islands, mainland cities, urban, rural and we're being told to get back, get to the back of the bus, shut up, and let Theresa May negotiate on our behalf. Uh, that that yeah. is disrespectful of our democratic choices. And we have got a political apparatus within Scotland with a national parliament, a national government that we, the people of Scotland, expect better than this.
0: Yeah. We had uh, Kirsty Blackman of the SNP on the show oh, she's a great. Ago. She was great. She was a wonderful yeah. guest. She talked very convincingly and very soothingly about the idea of civic nationalism, the mm-hmm. idea that, you know, because on this show, we have a fear of nationalism, and I think it's well founded because English nationalism is an ugly thing and it's, gro- it's, growing, it's, rising, it's, it's uh, it 's growing it 's rising it it has a nasty side to it um, it can 't be denied that there is also a kind of a over enthusiastic and occasionally quite um, can be quite vicious aspect to Scottish nationalism, the cyber where you 'll be absolutely torn to shreds on Twitter if you advocate anything other than a quite a doctrinaire approach to uh, one idea of Scottish nationalism. I'm not accusing you of having anything to do with it, but it is part of the kind of part of the spectrum. How do you main, how do you maintain a, a strategy towards an independent Scotland while not allowing that kind of thing to get out of out of hand? Right. I mean, we saw things like you know big intimidatory marches outside the BBC, which looked kind of weird from our perspective. How do you deal with that? Well.
1: The online stuff is is being amped up by external forces. I, I, I've commissioned some research, which I actually have here, which mm. we're putting out next week about the extent to which there is external influence on Scottish Twitter, especially. And if you want abuse, well, I get, I get plenty of red, white and blue and orange oh, abuse yeah, no myself as a, as a gay out pro-European nationalist. Uh, I get quite a bit of abuse from other points of the spectrum as well. I don't think any particular political agenda has a worse problem with that. I think we all have a problem with online discourse, and I think that's something that we need to fix. Uh, you'll be hearing more about that in the next couple of weeks. I've written to Twitter with some ideas about how we can we can fix that. But, but in terms of you know, the, the, the old ideas of the blood and soil nationalism, well, yeah. well, we've faced that down. And this is where I think we in Scotland need to help the people of England to have this discussion, because England is the great unexamined country. Because for so many people, England and Britain were basically interchangeable and we all rubbed along and that was fine. Much of that was based on an ignorance of how things work in other bits of these islands. Northern Ireland, the extent to which Northern Ireland has not been part of the discussion within Brexit, pre or post the referendum, is absolutely negligent. It is dangerous. We're coming from Glasgow, I've been back and forth to Belfast a lot and it's really, really sensitive and it's not being given the the sensitivity that it deserves. Also in terms of the sensitivities that we have in Scotland having just had a referendum where the European question was important, we're being told to get to the back of the bus. That's not good enough. Now we're the third biggest block at Westminster presently. We're not without uh, arms within the the parliamentary arithmetic. We'll use that. But in terms of England sorting out where it fits in the world and where it sits, sadly I think Brexit is a symptom of a wider crisis. where. The UK just needs to get real about where it actually is these days. So the empire is a thing of history. The UK is a medium-ranking European country, which will achieve far more by being part of fully the European Union. Get rid of this sniffy arms length where used to be special nonsense. Actually buy into it properly. Uh, my best example of this was was how the Europe minister of the UK was until very recently a junior minister of the Foreign Office. You know, and, and yet, as we're now seeing in black and white, so much domestic legislation came via the EU apparatus. But the UK, even within the floor of the House of Commons, it was always, ah, like, oh, well, that's, that's just yeah. over there. That's not, And denying the fact that we are part of this throughout. And in Scotland, because of my party, I think we're about 20 years more advanced in that discussion. We've we've always been comfortable with a multi multi identity. I'm Scottish. I'm British. I'm European. And whatever measure of that of that cocktail you feel well, that is your business. But the fact is, you live here. You're one of us. So you've got a vote, and you've got to okay. say, England's yet to have that discussion. And, and and I fear that the Brexit vote was a was a spasm of nostalgic. Well, I don't like where things are. This is something. Let's shake things up a bit. I don't think an awful lot of people who voted Leave actually had much of an opinion about the EU at all, which is where, I, as I say, I think we can move things. But from from a Scottish perspective, yeah, we, we must make sure that we, we stick to our values. It's civic nationalism. If you're, if you're in our community, you're one of us. Blood and soil is, is something, we, very much something of
0: the past. One final question. You called for there to be a Scottish entry to the Eurovision Song contra, Contest. <laughs> if, we will support that if you support our support of a final say referendum. Is it a deal? Handshake here and now. We're behind a Scottish Eurovision entry. If you're going to back final say. So fantastic. Oh, yeah. You heard oh, it here. God, amazing. First. That was easy. That was very was, effective.
1: How <laughs> diplomacy <Yeah>. works. <laughs>
3: absolutely.
0: You've, you've got the gays worked out. There, there. <laughs> That's that. Gays worked out is my middle name. Before we finish up, we've just about got time for one of the items we're calling, but your emails, Ingrid.
2: Will Sadler in Newcastle says, imagine that the Labour Party conference shifts the party in favour of a referendum on the final deal and a successful no confidence vote in the government occurs after May's Brexit deal is rejected by Parliament. How possible would it be in the 14 days following the no confidence vote, in brackets as specified in the Fixed Term Parliament Act, that Corbyn could form a temporary administration? lasting, say, 18 months with a kind of placeholder budget and legislative agenda to negotiate an extension to Article 50 and the referendum. There's more. We would be facing <laughs> a national emergency and this would offer a people's vote without having to have a general election because there would then technically be a majority in Parliament for a second referendum. What do we think?
3: So that's, I mean, that's right on the earth, Parliament Act. You would get the 14 days in order to form a new coalition. Um, He would obviously have to patch it together by all the other minority parties. He still wouldn't have a majority. So he'd need to convince that he could have some kind of budget that enough Tory moderates could support. You could probably do that by just saying, we'll keep things as they are for one year. You could then get them to support a second referendum. I don't think this is very likely for the basic reason that I can't see a no confidence vote in the government passing. Mm because I think any Tory MPs who would vote against the deal and also who would vote for a second referendum would not vote to have no confidence in their own government. So uh, on that basis, I don't think the Fixed Term Parliaments Act would be pertinent because I can't imagine that vote passing. Okay, well, that's pretty much the end of the show. Are all of the b- emails going to be as fun as this? Because yeah, I love, they are just proper yeah. fucking geeky. Like, they're like
2: the eight, best part. i like, yeah. not well, going to lie, I did not understand the question. <laughs> I was very glad
0: that you <laughs> answered it. But you read
3: it, it very convincingly. <laughs> Thank
0: The Most emails are things like, does, does Ian think the Hulk could beat Nigel Farage in a fight? And it's you're like, not uh, letting them
2: through? I'm not letting this them through. This is
0: bullshit. Okay, right, that's pretty much the end of the show. People, keep your emails coming to info at com. Mark them for podcast and we will read out the best ones or the nerdiest ones for Ian. We've just about got time for the Brexit time capsule. Ingrid Oliver, it's your debut as a regular, so you get to choose what's going into our buried hoard of things.
2: Um, I would like to put in the time capsule uh, European police procedural... Television oh, shows. Oh wow! Yeah, because cool. I—that is my main, my mainstay. Uh, and if I can't have those anymore, I, I can't answer for my actions. I don't know what will happen. So
0: basically, the yeah, killing the killing spiral, 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 engrenage, engrenage, engrenage.
2: Um, all of those that keep yeah. me sane. And I've yeah. watched. Hours, weeks, possibly, of European police procedures. So that's going in my Brexit mind capsule. I thought I'm you were talking your...
1: about instructional videos or something <laughs> like
2: that. Yeah. <laughs> ah, <it's> the, uh, <laughs> here's how the you take European a swab after a murder. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's the Walter Presents strand of <laughs> <laughs> In many ways, they are instructional yeah. Yeah, videos. Yeah, they well, are, exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And here's your traditional clip of a non-English EU language. This is the brilliant Marie Remy, who does sterling work against Brexit, speaking French. Maman, comment est-ce qu'on dit Brexit en français Mon fils,
2: on traduit ça par suicide national.
0: That translates as, Mummy, how do you say Brexit in French? My son, you translate it as national suicide. (laughs) That's very bleak. Send us (laughs) us your farewell clip (laughs) in a European language. Just record something on your phone and email it with a translation to info at remainx.com and we'll use the best ones. And that is the end of the show. Thanks to our special guest, Alan Smith, MEP. Great to see you. It's 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 been a marathon. and Thank you for staying in the the sweaty studio. I believe you've got a public meeting coming up in Sterling on Brexit shortly. Is it... uh, this Saturday coming up
1: do indeed I'm very much looking forward to it. it's uh, myself and Labour MEP Catherine Styler who's been doing a power of work as well
0: to shed some sense into all of this so looking forward to the track fantastic well thanks for coming in please do come in again if you can uh, if you can face it thanks to Ian and Ingrid uh, Ingrid how was your first show as a regular? good? amazing amazing f- <laughs> everything yes. I dreamed it would be <laughs> <you>. absolutely <laughs> listeners we'll see you next time here's our theme tune Demon is a Monster by Shop, and the traditional shout out to our latest Patreon backers
3: Hello, and thanks from me to Samueli Marcora, Scott Pryor, Sally Kimball-Smith, Tim Clark and Elizabeth Connolly.
2: And thanks from me to Gabby, just Gabby, uh, Michael Gorman, Claire Murphy, Megan Hulser and John Higgins.
0: And it's hello and thank you very much from me too. Anne Jackson, Alex Mertha, Rebecca Young, Julian Friedman and Fraser Clark. Many thanks. We'll see you again next week. Romaniacs was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Ingrid Oliver and Ian Dunt.
3: Studio production was by me, Jack Claremont. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.